Good morning. Uh, it always amazes me how many people I do not know. I recognize my wife, Cindy, and Jim and Rosemary Marshall. Other than that, I just don't, <laughs> I don't know who you are. My name's Bob Weiss, and I'm the care pastor at the Maranatha Bible Church, and we're delighted to be here this morning. And I noticed in the welcome table outside the treasure principle by Randy Alcorn. If you haven't uh, purchased that book, I'd encourage you to do so. It's, it's got a lot of sound principles and uh, forgiving. He's got some other books, both fiction and nonfiction, that are very good. He has a book on heaven, by the way, that uh, helps us to think about heaven in ways maybe we haven't considered yet. And that's a good read, too. But you know, folks, the Bible has 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And some are noteworthy for their emphasis. When you think of creation, for example, you think of Genesis chapter 1. When you think of the Word of God chapter, Psalm 119. The Suffering Servant chapter, Psalm or Isaiah 53. The Nativity of Jesus, uh, Luke chapter 2. Pentecost chapter, Acts chapter 2, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, the faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, and on it goes. And the giving passage, and that's where we're at today, actually two chapters, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. When I started to, started to cover or study this passage a few weeks ago, I realized why this is included in the overflow series. The Greek word translated overflow is used 10 times, 10 times in those two chapters. Not always translated the same way. Sometimes it's overflow or it might be abound or abundance or one time superfluous. In other words, more than enough, more than it's really necessary. But 10 times in those two chapters alone. You know, under the Mosaic law, giving was mandatory. It was a divine requirement. Under grace, giving is voluntary. It's a sincere, loving response to what God has already graciously done for us. For about five years, from 52 to 57 AD, the Apostle Paul had been raising money for a collection for the poverty-stricken Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. And he was soliciting funds from the Gentile churches that he had founded, that he had planted, and uh, for example, in Galatia, and then also in Macedonia, that was what we would call northern Greece today. That's where Philippi and Thessalonica were, for example. And then south of there to the province of Achaia, and that's where Corinth was located. And then east to Asia Minor, where he planted the church of Ephesus. So he was collecting funds from these various churches to take back to Jerusalem. And when Paul was in Macedonia on his third missionary journey, he wrote 2 Corinthians, which among other things was to encourage the Corinthian believers to finish the collection of funds before he arrives. He didn't want there to be a scramble, to feel pressure, to feel manipulated, to uh, feel like they're being coerced after he arrives. He intends to arrive sometime soon. He wants the collection to be taken before, before he arrives. 
And in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that's a central passage in the Bible on giving. It's kind of bookended, you might say, by the grace of God. For example, at the beginning of chapter 8, in verses 1 through 4, you see the grace of God there and how God was gracious to enable the Macedonians to give generously to this collection. He says, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance, there's that word, overflow or abundance of joy, and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify, Paul said, that according to their ability and even beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. That is the saints back in Jerusalem. So that's one bookend. Then the other bookend is at the end of chapter 9, where he wants the surpassing grace of God to enable those Corinthian believers to complete what they started to give generously to those same saints back in Jerusalem. And between those two bookends, Paul calls this collection a gracious work. Three times in chapter 8, he calls this a gracious work. For example, in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, We urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you, the Corinthians, this gracious work as well. But just as you abound, and there's that word, overflow or abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all the earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound, there's that word, abound or overflow in this gracious work also. So you had these bookends. It's called a gracious work, collecting this money for the saints. And the premier example of gracious giving of course, is God himself. The Bible encourages us to be imitators of God as best we can. So, for example, in chapter 8, verse 9, there Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And then in chapter 9, in verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And giving is one of those good deeds. So God is our Father. If we're believers, we are His children. It becomes us to do things the way He does it. So. What I'm trying to get across mostly today is this. When we, like God, give graciously, we reflect a family resemblance, and we should. When we, like God, give graciously, we reflect a family resemblance. And then the last part of chapter 8, verses 16 through 24, Paul gives details about the, an upcoming visit from a delegation led by Titus to collect the money before he arrives. Again, he doesn't want to feel, them to feel pressured after he arrives in Corinth. Uh, collect the money before he arrives. 
The objective, by the way, was not to make the Judean Christians rich and the Corinthian believers poor, but to establish more equality among them than presently existed. So we see this in chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. He says, For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance, there's that word, overflow or abundance, being a supply for their need, so that your abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. So let's go to chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, where it says, for it is superfluous, and there's that word again, more than enough, really unnecessary for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. That is this ministry of collecting money for the poor saints in Judea. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia, and again, that's where Corinth is located in this providence of Achaia, has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetous, covetousness or greed. So to summarize those few verses, again, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians from Macedonia, and the previous year they had been eager to give, and they promised they would. But somehow things had faltered in that ensuing time, and they had lagged behind on their promise. And yet Paul was boasting to the Macedonians and to others, and to Titus, for example, how eager the Corinthians were to, to give to this collection. And that boasting inspired the Macedonians to give, and they did. But the Corinthian zeal has somehow faltered. And ironically, now Paul's going to use the Macedonians and what they've already done, giving generously to inspire or motivate the Corinthians to do the same thing, to... Uh, complete what they had started. So Paul is sending Titus and a delegation to Corinth to encourage them to complete what they had promised, what they had started. You know, empty promises, over-promising can really bring shame. And Paul doesn't want that for himself or for them. It's kind of like clouds without water. Clouds promise rain and so forth, but if it doesn't rain, uh, it's uh, a hollow promise, an empty promise. He doesn't want that to happen. So Paul said he's going to rise sometime soon, send this delegation on ahead. So in chapter 12, verse 14, for example, there Paul says, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. In chapter 13, verse 1, this is the third time I am coming to you. He's going to arrive soon, but I think we can find a principle for giving here. Your giving may motivate others to give. Often what we do affects others. 
Whenever we pray, that encourages others to pray. When we work hard, that encourages others to work hard. When we share our faith, that encourages others to share their faith. Whenever we give, that encourages others to give. It's consistent, I think, with Hebrews 10.24 that says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And giving generously with the right motives is a good deed. Our giving would encourage others to do the same. And by the way, individuals should give secretly. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, like those poverty-stricken saints back in Judea, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their full reward. But when you give, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will, re will reward you. So we should not be advertising how much we personally give. Uh, that's between us and the Lord. But I think it's okay and maybe a good thing for churches whether it's this church or Maranatha or others, to let it be known that they're a giving church. Last year, for example, Maranatha Bible Church gave $100,000 to God's pit crew out of Danville, Virginia. And their ministry is disaster relief, helping many, many people who cannot help themselves. And Maranatha gave to that liberally, and I can't help but think that motivated other churches and organizations to give generously too. And then in verses 6 through 11, we'll find that your giving will result in personal blessings. And uh, in verse 6, for example, Paul says, now, I, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There's a principle there that only generous giving yields satisfying results. Only generous giving yields satisfying results. It's the law of the harvest repeated several times throughout the scriptures. It's a timeless principle. It seems like it works in every realm, whether it's the social realm or physical realm or intellectual, emotional, uh, spiritual realm. In all these different realms, that same law of the harvest really does work. For example, in the social realm, if you want to have lots of friends, you have to be friendly. An unfriendly person usually does not have too many friends. In the physical realm, it's one thing to read about swimming, for example. It's another thing to go on and get wet, get in the pool, learn to swim by doing it, and maybe even teaching others how to swim. If all you do is read about it, that's not helpful. So we... <laughs> We reap what we sow. In the intellectual realm, if you want to increase your knowledge of God and our relationship to Him, you take in God's Word basically five ways. You hear it, 
You read, about, you read it, you study it, you memorize it, and you meditate upon it. If you do those things, you'll increase in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and of biblical things. If all you do is just hear, maybe once a week on Sunday morning, that's good, but that's not as good as it could be. In the emotional realm, if you can consistently practice certain principles, like Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4, for example, Isaiah said, Lord, you'll keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is fixed on you, because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. He's a faithful God. It seems like Isaiah is saying there's two keys or conditions to experience peace on days just like today or in the crises of life. One is to keep your focus on the Lord, and the other is to keep on trusting Him. If we'll do that, if we'll practice that, we'll experience that peace that God offers to us. It's one thing to know that verse. It's another thing to actually practice it, make it become a part of your life and who you are. And then in the spiritual realm, you know, we want to, the ultimate goal is to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ himself. So how can we do that? If we'll take in mega doses of God's word and let it saturate our minds and let it circulate through our streams of consciousness, let it metabolize in our soul to become a very part of who we are and let it transform us day after day, year after year into the likeness of Christ. Let it work its way out in our lives. We'll become transformed and someday God will complete what he started in our lives and will be fully conformed to the image of his son. As opposed to, for example, and I don't want to step on any toes here, if, you all, if all you do is a daily devotional, and de devotionals are good, don't get me wrong, those things are good, but let's do more than that. Let's immerse ourselves in God's word that we might experience this uh, transformation that can take place. You know, this principle even operates as far as God is concerned. He operates by his same timeless principles. Whenever he, in John 3.16, sent his son into this world, the way I put our trust in him, that was a great sacrifice. He gave his son. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. What is his, what's he going to reap out of that? I think Ephesians 1.18 tells us. It's true that we have an inheritance, but you know, God has an inheritance too. And I think he's looking forward to receiving his inheritance. His inheritance is us. Saints who someday are going to be around God's throne worshiping him. Millions of us who have put our trust in Jesus. Millions of us worshiping Him, glorifying God throughout the endless ages to come. God is looking forward to receiving His inheritance too. And that's the law of the harvest. And then in verse 7, it says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's saying only giving with the right motives can please God. Only giving with the right motives can please God. Paul wanted that contribution to be completed before he arrived. 
so it might not appear that they were giving under compulsion or being manipulated or doing it under pressure. He wanted it done with the right motives, like they had promised and were eager to do a year ago. God wants us to give voluntarily, cheerfully, lovingly, generously, graciously, not grudgingly, or under compulsion. The question arises, how much should we give? Well, in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Law, that was pretty well laid out. They had definite guidelines by which they should give. Not so much in the New Testament. I guess I would say this, only give as much as you can give, cheerfully, lovingly, and graciously. Give that much. That's how much we should give. And then in verse 8, what a great verse this is. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. There's that word, overflow or abound to you. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance, there's that word, for every good deed. In other words, whatever God requires of you, he'll enable you to do to the extent you trust him for the enablement. I think it's edifying to review some of the things that God has already graciously given to us. What's he given to us already? Well, he's given his son, John 3:16. Titus 2:14 says Christ gave himself. Why? That we might have a savior. He gave us salvation in response to our faith, that we might enter into the Christian life. He gave us the Holy Spirit to enable us to live the Christian life. He gave us spiritual leaders that might equip the saints for the work of the ministry. He's given us the victory through a Lord Jesus Christ that we might live victoriously. He's given us precious and magnificent promises, folks, that we might have hope for the future. And of course, he gives us grace, past, present, and future grace. In the past, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. In the future, and this is maybe my favorite verse in the Bible, that changes once in a while, but I always come back to this. Ephesians 2, 7, God has saved us for a reason. It's so that we might, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Imagine that. What an appealing prospect for the future. But then what about the present? You know, in the present, I believe he wants us to ask. He wants us to experience his grace, but he wants us to ask as an expression of our trust for grace. I think of Hebrews 4.16, God invites us to draw near with confidence to his throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. And every day, I suspect, has its time of need, doesn't it? And ask him. God likes that when we ask him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and then trust him to respond. And these are only some of the things that God has given to us. But you know, it says in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He never takes back his gifts. And then in verse 9, now here's a quote from Psalm 112, verse 9, talking about a righteous man. He, that is the righteous man, scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. 
the righteous acts of a righteous man are rewarded either in this life or someday at the judgment seat of Christ in the world to come. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And giving generously, with the right motives, by the way, with the right motives, is a good deed. Something he can reward someday at the judgment seat when he evaluates our Christian lives. And then in verses 10 and 11, he says, Now he, that is God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. God will give the generous giver an increasing means to give and will prompt others to express thanksgiving to God. For those who are willing to give generously, God seems to supply even more to give even more generously. And for those who are the recipients of that generosity, they give thanksgiving to God. I think a good example of this is uh, R.J. Letourneau. Maybe some of you folks have heard of him. He uh, was a Christian inventor and businessman, and this was about a century ago. He was a sixth grade dropout about 1900. He became the leading earth-moving machinery manufacturer of his day. He and his family lived on 10% of their income and gave 90% to the spread of the gospel. He asked God to be his partner in business. It seems the more he gave, the more his business partner supplied. And during a time when the rest of the country was plagued by the Great Depression, in 1932, for example, his net profit was $52,000. Two years later, that increased to $340,000. And four years after that, in 1938, his net profit was $1.4 million. Now, that's a lot of money anytime. But back in that day, I just checked this morning on the Internet, the average cost of a new car back in 1938 was $780, about. So if you're, a mil if you're a millionaire or so, that went a long way back in those days. And then eventually, as a philanthropist, he gave away, I understand, more than $40 million. He was fond of remarking, it's not how much of my money I give to God, but how much of God's money I keep for myself. I understand his life verse was Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, all these things will be added to you. So a principle out of these verses, 6 through 11, your giving will result in personal blessings. Your giving will result in personal blessings. And just an observation here again, I think God lives by his own principles. God is blessed when he blesses us, when he gives to us. It says in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His, who blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. 
God gives to us and the God of our the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father, He is blessed. And that's one reason why He's blessed. So again, when we, like God, give graciously, we reflect a family resemblance. And then verses 12 and 13, Paul says, For the ministry of this service, again, that's the collecting the money for the saints back in Jerusalem. The ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints back in Jerusalem, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they, that is the saints back in Jerusalem, will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. This collection would not only meet the needs of the poor saints back in Jerusalem, it would go well beyond that. There would be an overflow. It would overflow into expressions of thanksgiving to God, and it would give glory to God as part of the overflow. And you know, the, the churches back in Judea and in Jerusalem, you might say that was the mother church, and these were offspring of that mother church. A lot of Jews... And that day, and believers were kind of suspicious of these Gentiles in the churches where Paul was planting churches in Gentile territory. They were suspicious of them. That uh, This shows up, I think, in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And so the reality of saving faith among the Gentile churches was suspect among some of these Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. But this generous contribution would suggest otherwise. They had saving faith and their faith was working, as James might say. They were giving generously to these poor folks back in Jerusalem. So another third principle is that your giving will benefit others and glorify God. Your giving will benefit others and glorify God. I think that's consistent with Galatians 6, verse 10. It says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to those who are believers like we are. When we benefit those folks and have opportunity to do so, that's a good deed in God's sight. And your giving will also glorify God. You know, it says uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. Well, part of that all is to give generously with the right motives. When we do that, that brings glory to God. And then lastly, in verses 14 and 15, Paul says, while they also, that they, that is the saints back in Jerusalem, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Just like God had been gracious to give the Macedonians a disposition to give, he's going to do the same thing Paul expects for the Corinthians too, that they would have a disposition to give generously, complete that collection that they had started. I think we'll find in this passage a principle. 
that your giving will help create experiential unity among God's people. On the one hand, the body of Christ is united and always will be. Through spirit baptism, he forms the body of Christ of which Christ is the head. And we are members of that body and we are united now and we always will be. It says, for example, in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. There's that unity that cannot be broken. But experientially, well, we fall woefully short too many times. We're far from being united experientially. How many denominations are there in the United States of America alone? I don't know. Too many to count. Many, many, even different Baptists, dozens of different kinds of Baptists. And there's division over sometimes the silliest things. For example, they divide over doctrinal things, of course, but also just kind of silly things. You know, the millennium. We have the awe mills, the pre-mills, the post-mills, and the pan-mills. I've met a few people who are pan-millennials. They say, it's all going to pan out. I don't, we don't have to understand this. Just let it happen. So they're pan-mills. And then you have water baptism. That tends to divide. Now, spirit baptism, that unites. You can't break that unity formed by spirit baptism that forms the body of Christ. But water baptism, is it sprinkling? Is it pouring? Is it by immersion? What's the mode? Well, the division takes place over things like that. And you have the silly things, uh, too silly to mention here this morning. But there are some things, by the way, where we should break fellowship when it comes to some of the fundamentals of the faith. Things like the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now, things like that, yes, we can break fellowship if we differ on those things. But most other things, though they may be important, whether it's the rapture, the millennium, or whatever it might be, we can differ on things like that, but we should not break fellowship. So whatever animosity that might have existed between the Jewish congregations back in Judea and the Gentile churches which Paul had established, the generosity of the Corinthians would help to dissolve that animosity. By the way, in verse 15, what is the indescribable gift? This gift of God, this indescribable gift, what is it? Well, some say the indescribable gift is salvation. Well, if the context is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this concept of salvation by grace through faith is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If that's the context, yes, that would make sense. That would be the indescribable gift, but not in this context. Some would say it's eternal life. Well, if the context is, for example, 1 John 5.11, where John says, this is the testimony, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son, if that's the context, well, that indescribable gift would probably be eternal life. But that's not the context here. If the context is John 3.16, some would say it's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That's the indescribable gift. 
If the context is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him, and so forth, if that's the context, then certainly the Lord Jesus Christ is the indescribable gift. But that's not the context here. Context is the key. It usually is. This section on giving ends where it began, with the grace of God in chapter 8, verse 1, and with the surpassing grace of God in chapter 9, verse 14. By the grace of God, he gave the churches of Macedonia a disposition to give generously to the poor churches in Judea. That's the one bookend. But then Paul anticipated that by the grace of God, the surpassing grace of God, he says, did he give the Corinthians that same disposition to give generously, to give joyfully, cheerfully, generously to the poor saints back in Judea. That, I believe, is the indescribable gift in this context. And the principle is your giving will help create experiential unity among God's people. Your giving will help create experiential unity among God's people. And God can give that same indescribable gift to you and to me, namely the disposition to give generously to meet needs and use it to break down barriers between the rich and the poor, between the races, between the social classes, between enemies in need of reconciliation and so forth. Breaking down these barriers as we give generously, they will thank us for our contributions and our generosity. But, you know, that gift isn't yours until you receive it. How do you receive it? Well, I believe we're to ask. We know this is God's will for us to give generously with the right motives. It says in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. We know this is God's will for us to give generously with the right motives. We can ask him to do that for us and then trust him to respond to our request and as an expression of our trust, thank him in advance, thank him in advance for responding to our prayers. You know, some Christians have the gift of giving. Romans 12:8 the capacity to give of their substance to the work of the Lord or to the people of God, consistently, liberally, sacrificially, and with such wisdom and cheerfulness that others are encouraged and blessed. R.G. Letourneau had the gift of giving, but all of us are called to give according to biblical principles. Some have the gift of evangelism, all of us are to share the gospel as we have the opportunities. Jesus did, and if we do it like Jesus did, we'll show a family resemblance. Some have the gift of mercy. All of us are called to be merciful. Jesus said in Luke 6:36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And if we, like our Father, are merciful, we'll show a family resemblance. Some have the gift of helps and loving others, but all of us are called to help those in need and to love others and to obey the command of Jesus in John 15, 12, when he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another 
just as I have loved you. If we obey that commandment and love others like Jesus did, we'll show a family resemblance. Some have the gift of giving. All of us are to give to support God's work to further his kingdom in this world. And when we, like God, give graciously, we reflect a family resemblance. And by the way, how's the story end? <laughs> the Corinthians, it's, it seems, did finish their work and sent a gift to Jerusalem. It says in Romans chapter 15, beginning at verse 25, about a year later, Romans was written about a year after 2 Corinthians. About a year later, writing from Corinth, Paul wrote, Now I am going to Jerusalem during his third missionary journey, serving the saints from Macedonia and Achaia. Again, Corinth is in that province of Achaia. Have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. That's a great ending to a great story. They did exactly what Paul hoped they would do and prayed that they would do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us principles for living. Not just in giving, but in every area of our lives, the Bible tells us things that we need to know to live a life in this world that honors you, that brings glory to God, and someday will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ when you evaluate our lives. Lord, we want to be more and more, day after day, year after year, conformed to the image of your Son, that we might increasingly show a family resemblance to you, Father, and to the Lord Jesus. We ask you to do that. We know that's according to your will. And we thank you in advance for responding to our prayers. Lord, we love you and we trust you. Thank you for being a great God and Father to us. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.